Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with Steve Krein, and this is the Free Zone Frontier podcast. And Steve, when you get an idea that's a moving idea, things really move. (laughs) One of the things I've noticed, just from the standpoint of strategic coach, is that September 1st, 2019 was the crossover where the entire strategic coach program, just wrapping up our 30th year as an entrepreneurial coaching program, is completely transforming into a program where we consider everybody in strategic coach involved in a single process, and that's creating free zone frontiers in their entrepreneurial business, and more and more linking up in the world with other people who want free zone frontiers. And just to give everybody The definition of a free zone frontier, a free zone frontier is a unusual entrepreneurial value creation activity based on collaboration where you are amazingly free from competition. So that's kind of an interesting thing because if you're an entrepreneur and you started off as an entrepreneur and you've got 10, 20, 30 years in, competition is like the law of gravity. And to actually be in an environment where there's no competition really seems like a extraordinary idea. Well, first of all, Dan, great to always be back and having a great chat with you. And first of all, congratulations on the 30th year. I think I've spent 21 of those 30 years with you, 22 of those years with you. And I got to say, you know, I think most exciting part about being a part of Strategic Coach, not only watching you and participating every quarter with the rest of the community in the coaching program and the experience, it's this idea that you continually iterate and morph as you discover new ways of not only describing what you do and how you do it, but how the entrepreneurs in Strategic Coach can benefit from your thinking within days, if not weeks, if not in real time. And so it's really exciting to see how quickly the free zone frontier concept recontextualized so much of what Strategic Coach is. And I thought maybe we could step back for a moment because there's been different phases, I think, of Strategic Coach, you know, whether it's by the year or by the decade. And I'd love to kind of just ask you to reflect back for a moment on the past 30 years and kind of describe maybe the three phases that you've gone through in getting to being a free zone frontier company. Thanks a lot, Steve, because I had to do this in my most recent workshop because I had to show where I have experienced free zones. And really the first one goes back even before the program started when I was a one-on-one coach And it happened simultaneously with my second one. So the first one was actually the creation of the strategic coach thinking process, where as a one-on-one coach, I was dealing with radically different scenarios because I was experimenting. And after I'd done 20 or 30 basically one-off planning sessions starting in 1974, I began to notice that there was a process. There was actually a similarity that when people have goals and they strive towards them, there's actually a very, very common thinking experience that you have the vision. And that's a wonderful thing because you can get excited about a vision in the future. And then if you date it, put a deadline on it, and you put some numbers to measure it, then what happens is another part of your brain kicks in, which is that you see all the obstacles that would 
keep you from actually getting to that. And that's the end of the game for a lot of humans, you know, because in their minds, the obstacles make it impossible, so they don't actually pursue it. But then there's entrepreneurs who are hard drivers, and they take on the obstacles, and it's tough going. But if you just isolate the obstacles, don't treat them as a gang of obstacles, but just take them one-on-one and say, well, is there a decision I can make about this? Is there something I can communicate about this obstacle? Is there action I can take? And what's most important is there's someone who can help me out with each one of these obstacles. Then you transform the obstacles. Just thinking about the obstacle as an individual obstacle actually helps transform it then the actions that come out of the transformations actually lead to the creation. So it's vision, opposition, transformation, and action. And, you know, I played with that and played with it, and then I came up with a graphic, a visual graphic, where everybody could go through a single process of thinking. And just one of the outcomes is that I had no competition because nobody else had this thinking process. And I became famous for the thinking process with referral famous. People say, Dan's got this weird thing, and somebody actually named it and called it a strategy circle. So I say, yeah, it's a strategy circle, vision, opposition, transformation, action. At the same time, my second free zone happened, I met Bab Smith, and I was just a lonely, hustling entrepreneur out there by myself. (laughs) And, you know, I don't operate good on my own. I'm just not a good lone wolf out in the marketplace. I really needed a partner. And Babs just has unique ability to create teamwork. She can create teamwork and she can take away things you shouldn't be doing. And that led us gradually to the point where we decided to put coach not as a one-on-one thing with me with a single individual, but that we could do this in groups. This was after, you know, 15 years of really mastering the VODA process. And then in 1989, November 13th, we actually had our first workshop. And the first one just had six people, but I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because you weren't getting paid six times normal, but you were getting paid four times normal. And then we grew, and now we're, you know, 130 team members. We're in three countries. We have 17 coaches. We have 3,000 clients, and it's just grown. But we've stuck with those basics that we started with right from the beginning with the voter process. And that voter process, as you apply it to different type of entrepreneurial issues and difficulties, it comes up with other thinking tools, the most famous being unique ability. And I think unique ability is the great, if I had to say you took away everything from me and you only allowed me to keep one of the tools we've created, it would be unique ability. With unique ability, I could go out and create 50 more tools different from the first ones, and they would all work because the concept of you should just focus on what you're great at and delegate everything else to other people, I think kind of goes against the grain in the world where people are told to master all sorts of things. The educational system puts the emphasis on you being good at everything. I think when most people get into work life, they have to be good at everything, whether it's your sweet spot or not. And it's a great concept for entrepreneurs. So I would say those are my free zone frontiers. And then you've been part of all the leading edge breakthroughs that we've made all along the way. We keep upping the club for successful entrepreneurs. So every time it looks like 
first of all, we've kind of reached the limit. And, you know, we have 500 people. Well, 100 of them are ready for something new. So I always take the 100 and start a new program. Probably 50 out of 500. is probably about 10% of any group. And then I start a higher group who are focused on more interesting activities for me, but also they're producing really major results in the world. And we were chatting before we did this podcast. And, you know, I can just see amazing things are happening to you, you know, just by... Taking your unique ability, the success of the organization you've created, and now you're collaborating way, way outside of the realm of your own company. You're cooperating with hundreds of other entrepreneurial companies. You're cooperating and collaborating with major corporations and institutions right around the world. You're a global entrepreneur in a way that I can't see anyone having any competition with you. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting as you were just describing all those different phases, and I feel like I watched you give birth to a lot of the things that you just described, right? I mentioned sometimes you watch it in real time in a workshop, you see kind of the synapses connecting in your mind. I've seen you draw stuff up one time, and then I come back a quarter later, and it's a tool, and I come back the next quarter, and it's a book, and you come back the next quarter, and it's a reframing of a bunch of different existing or had been pre-existing tools or concepts in the program. And so, What I want to kind of tease out a little bit and understand is how you think about the free zone frontier today. And I'm going to use Apple because I think it's a terrific model for a flywheel where every September, we just heard about the next generation of the iPhone. And, you know, it's got three cameras and one's wide and one's telephoto and one is regular. But the power that they are now including in the iPhone is just 10 times where it was a couple of years ago, 100 or 200 times where it was five or 10 years ago, but they've gotten us used to every September getting a new iPhone, right? This idea of the technology is going to improve. I think the same thing's happening a little bit different of a pace with the iPad, a little bit even slower pace with the computers, but we're witnessing this idea of new thinking, new technologies, new capabilities. And I think it's an interesting metaphor or analogy Mm -hmm. with strategic coach and even the free zone frontier, like the new strategic coach, thinking has come out for 2020. We're getting a preview of it in the, you know, end of 2019. And it's all about this free zone frontier. And as you were Mm -hmm. describing before the call, the recontextualization of everything in strategic coach around this, I think it's fascinating. So I just want to unpack that a little bit because you're really excited. I could see how energized you are by the concept. What does it mean to now be thinking about strategic coach and wrapping everything around the free zone frontier concept and how it ripples through everything else you're doing. Yeah, well, I think that the principle that I've seen, certainly in Apple, and we've talked about this before, because I think Apple in a certain way is different from everybody else, certainly in the high tech field, is that except for you know, the one period where Steve Jobs was more or less fired and thrown out of the company, and then he came back later when it was really at the edge of the cliff, he came back. They've always been really simple in their offerings, and they've had platforms that they constantly enhance. The first one, of course, was the personal computer. But when he came back, the personal computer, you know, the field was pretty well taken up. It was not a new 
striving industry anymore. It was a mature industry because of the graphic user interface, and Bill Gates had a better handle on that than Steve Jobs did. And I would say the thing that probably Steve Jobs learned when he got the chance to be outside of Apple and then think about it was that if he had only collaborated like Bill Gates did, in other words, we have a platform here, but any other computer company can actually collaborate with us. We'll just have Windows, and Windows will be, you know, other companies can use our operating system. Well, you could come back then and pick that game up or reverse that game. So he came back, and he went after a completely different field, and, you know, he had to obey the rules of cash flow, so they really had to hustle when he came back. But the big thing he did is they had like 80 product offerings. They had just gotten very, very complicated, and Steve Jobs, within about a year, brought it back down to six. They had six, you know, and those various kinds of computer laptops and personal computers. But what he did is he went after a different area, and it had to do with, you know, the MP3 player, and then the fact that the internet had arrived by then. And so the whole thing was, first of all, not quite, but you could put this music on an MP3 player. It wasn't a disc, it wasn't a record, it was an electronic player. And then very quickly, the internet came along, and you could put music on the internet. So he made a triangulation, and that was that he said, you know, there's a huge annoyance in the marketplace, and it has to do with recorded music, that the record companies, in order for you to get one song, you have to buy 11 others, or they won't give you that one song. And if you're a musician, if you want to have your music published, and you got a great song, you have to create 11 others. But people wanted the one song, and he said, well, why don't we just allow them to buy the one song? We'll put all the songs in the world up on iTunes, and then iTunes came into existence, and Napster had already tried it, but they were stealing music, and he says, you know, it was good, but stealing's just not a viable long-term business model. So he's, let's make it real cheap, let's make it a dollar a song, and let's give the artist about 10 times more than anyone else is giving them out of that dollar, so all the musicians in the world will want to do it, but you only have to put one song up. If you got one song, put it up. If you want to download one song. And then, very quickly, cell phones had come in, and he said, and Apple never creates the first of anything in a technology. They always watch what happens to various technologies. IBM had the first personal computer. There were a lot of MP3 players out there. You know, Napster had created downloading of music off the internet. But what they did then, the first iPhone, and they killed their iPod with their iPhone, and that was the big thing. The iPod was an incredibly prosperous product, and they had to kill their own product. You know, because Jobs says, you know, the cell phone will compete with the iPod. Then his team finally convinced him that he had to sacrifice the iPod to bring in the iPhone. And then the iPhone became, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the world. And still, as you were saying from version 11, can you imagine version 11 of the cell phone? Yeah. And they came up with a mission statement over that time. And the mission statement is that we make beautiful technology that people love using. So they're not tied to computers. It's technology. So 100 years down the road, is there going to be technology? Yeah, there's, you know, we won't even know what technology is 100 years from now because what isn't technology? 
But we make beautiful technology. And I was watching Scott Adams. He's one of my favorite podcasts. And he was talking. He spent about 10 minutes talking about the luscious experience of getting his new iPhone 11 and just the box that it came in and the wrapping of the box and going through the experience of opening the box and then the actual features of the iPhone. I mean, it was the greatest 10-minute product push. I don't think he gets any money from them, but he's just talking about... <laughs> what a joy it is for people who really think about their users when they create their technology. So I think that's really the key. So how do you play that back to where you are with the Free Zone Frontier, right? As you think about how you reflect back and recontextualize 30 years of coaching, 30 years of evolving your thinking and reframing for not only you, and the company, but for your clients. Yeah, well, I think the big thing, like Steve Jobs noticed, that consumers have a really, really annoying experience with recorded music because of this thing of being forced to buy songs they don't want so that they can get the song that they do want. Musicians hate the experience. So everybody involved in music that you think would be important, namely the people who create music, and the people who buy music and listen to music are being disregarded because of something else going on in the experience, which is basically corporations and people who are trying to monopolize part of the marketplace. Well, what I've noticed ever since you know, I started coaching entrepreneurs that everybody pays lip service to competition. You know, they're saying, yeah, I really like competition. You know, it's really good. You know, it's really developed my muscles. But when I ask people to daydream into the future and talk about what business would be like if they had their business running the way they did it and they were doing what they loved doing, I said, you know, what are some of the experiences that you daydream? And it's like a Venn diagram, you know, that they have a lot of different things, but where the overlap in the middle is, well, you know, I don't have any competition at all. Okay, I have such a unique thing and I have such unique customers and I have such a unique value creation proposition that there's just no competition. And I said, isn't that interesting? I said, entrepreneurs talk about competition as though they really love it, but actually their future, if they could have it as they would really have it, they really don't want any competition at all. And we already had a lot of tools that led up to that, but we were sort of circling something, but we weren't actually coming to grips with it. In the middle of everything that people would really love their future, there's a free zone, free from competition, but it requires that if you want no competition, then you're the first person who has to stop competing. And what's the opposite of competition is collaboration. So once I realize that if you are out in the marketplace and you are just willing to cooperate, collaborate with someone else, and money isn't the issue because money's handled for you. So one of the things we established right off the bat is you had to have cash flow confidence to play the collaboration game. So in the newest workshop of the Free Zone Frontier program, which is our upper level program, I said, here's the next law. If you have a choice between a new capability or more cash, always take the new capability because with a new capability, you'll create incredible but more cash. Yeah. But more cash won't create a capability. But I said, you have to be in cash confidence position to be in a position to actually 
do that. You know, so I just signed a major, I'm just on the process of signing into a major publishing contract where I don't get any of the money from the books. I said, I want all the team who is actually producing the book, including the publisher and the strategist and the writer, I want you guys to get all the money. And I hope we sell 10 million books and all the money from those 10 million books comes to you because I just want the signups in the strategic coach program. So let's break that up a little bit. You've got a non-employee team members, and I want to stress non-employee team members collaborating with you on a project where they're going to get the money the way they typically get paid. You're going to get quote unquote, the money, the way you typically get paid. Everybody brings their unique ability to the table, but nobody has to worry about money flowing from one of you to another one of you. You're allowing the actual distribution of the cash to go to the rightful contributors and everybody gets to do it their own way. Yes. With their own unique ability being at the core of how they're going to make money. Can you kind of tease that out? Because I think most entrepreneurs go to like hiring and they need a full-time team or they need their employees, quote unquote, to do it. You've taken a completely different approach with this book deal. Yeah, well, typically my lawyers are talking to their lawyers. I mean, just about all business deals where you're going outside of your company, first of all, there's meetings and there's lawyers at those meetings and there's documents. I'm not sure this was even a handshake. It was a fist pump among four people. So yeah, let's do it. You know, it's already launched. They just have to, you know, there are contracts that have to be signed and everything, but it's really the players who are actually the writer who's going to write the book. There's a strategist who's one of the great book strategists of how you market a book and get it out. You know, he understands all the interviews. He understands all the networks where all the blurb has to go out. And then he's got probably the greatest publisher in the United States that's actually a marketing publisher. Very few publishers are actual marketers. You know, they live almost in the academic world. So the big thing here is... If you don't need the money right now, in other words, that you have the staying power right now, but you could develop an incredible capability that the ordinary way of doing it, you'd have to staff up to do this, and it wouldn't be as good as a capability outside where that's their specialty, or you'd have to get massive investment in, or you'd have to sell part of your company or you'd have to get vendors in to do the parts that you want. I've bypassed that whole thing. I've got a great writer, a great strategist, and a great publisher, and they just love the idea of doing this project. And the only thing that I've done is I've said, the money we're gonna make is the way we make money anyway, which is people signing up for the program. I wanna juxtapose that with, so let's go back to the non-free zone frontier way of doing it and the non-collaborative way of doing it. You'd say, I need to go do a deal. We need to go do a deal with a publisher. We need to hire a writer, hire all the different people that are involved in the book. I will get paid the advance. I will then pay my team members to go work on it. And I will be the one leader of it with people doing what I need them to do or ask them to do. And so a very top-down approach, not very collaborative, more like an employer and employee. And all of a sudden now you're the both bottleneck, but also the one who feels, I think, all of the burden of responsibility. And so I want to kind of take what I think a lot of people typically would do 
and compare it to what you're describing here? Because I think it's subtle, but it's big. Mm. It's a big, mm-hmm. you're not hiring team members. I mean, you might even look at how many people in strategic coach would you need to hire to do all the things you're doing through collaboration. And it might be in the dozens of team members. And by the way, quality wise, as well as capability wise, my guess is you're talking about a completely different type of person to interact with. Yeah. Well, automatically the people who are going to execute this whole project are 10 times better than anyone I could possibly know. I wouldn't even know how to about doing this. And this is the reason why we've self-published over the years. I tell you what my ongoing activities are. Okay. So this is for people who are listening for the first time. Every quarter I produce a little book, and the book that we're being published in a big way right now is called Who Not How, which is a real important concept that when you have a big goal and a lot of hows have to be done, you don't do the hows, you find other whos who do the how. So having a big published book is a big goal for me. But there's a lot of hows, and I've never published a really big book because the hows are dawning. I said, I'll just produce little books. And self-publishing has become very, very economical. It's very fast. We have a good design shop inside our company for program reasons. We have a good production team. So I'm just using the team I already have to produce a little book. And the little book was actually the book proposal. All on the way, the writer was sold because of the little book. The strategist was sold because of the little book. The publisher was sold because of the little book. I had already written the proposal. And the other thing I do, they're going to keep interviewing me throughout the process as they're writing just to get clarity and take the ideas a little bigger. And then they want entrepreneurial examples to actually make the book thick so they can charge $30 for it. And well, let me see, do I know any entrepreneurs who would be good examples of this? Well, right now I'm looking at one on my screen as we're doing this podcast. So your name is very high on the list of people who I would have talk about their experience of doing who not how, not just within your company, but who not how globally not just with other entrepreneurs, but with other specialists in every kind of communication realm, large corporations who have massive distribution systems, big funding sources. You've done who, not how, to the nth degree just in the last 15 months, actually. And then I know your history for the six or seven years before that. So the whole point is, I've already done the work on this, Steve. I've already done the work. And the whole point, I said to them, I said, well, you know, we could probably have a best-selling new book every September. (laughs) Perfect. So we're putting together a team here. I said, this isn't a one-off team. I said, this is the first test of the team in the world, but why don't we just see if this works? And maybe I could do this with a lot of books. So what I've noticed is that the people that you team up with to collaborate on projects need to have the right mindset. We talk about mindset so much in not only these podcasts, but in everything we do, both at Startup Health and I know at Strategic Coach. Let's talk a little bit about the mindset needed, not your mindset, but the mindset of the collaborators that you need who might not have ever experienced such an exciting kind of collaboration. Yeah. First of all, what I notice when I talk about Free Zone Frontier And actually, the term free zone frontier is actually the biggest 
you can sort people out really, really fast just by talking about the free zone frontier. And a lot of our free zone frontier entrepreneurs now, and you know them because you're in the program with them, they're saying that the actual pitch before they actually talk about the collaboration, they actually say, well, I operate according to a philosophy of free zone frontier, which means that it's huge collaboration that can't be achieved anywhere else in the world between individuals who have a really, really big vision of something. And they just like to do this in a way that they don't want to go out of their area where they're really great and they really love doing the work. And instead, you just collaborate with another capability that gives you that. And it actually, Steve, in the world, it actually takes two forms. It's people who are great simplifiers who team up with people who are great multipliers. Hold on. Let's stop right there. Let's unpack that. Simplifier, multiplier. So opposites are complementary. And what do you mean by that? Well, the thing is that as an entrepreneur, you've had to be both a simplifier and a multiplier. And I've had to be a simplifier and a multiplier. But actually, if I had my druthers, I'd just like to be a simplifier and collaborate with multipliers. People who are as great multipliers as I am a simplifier. Okay, so I can simplify anything. And from knowing you, I think you've got both great simplifying and multiplying skills. But I think if you had your druthers, you'd just like to be a simplifier that really big multipliers would take what you've simplified and take it out into the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm obsessed with simplifying. And it's funny because almost on a regular basis, and it could be inside my organization or otherwise, where people think, I'm changing something or evolving something too quickly. And they're like, wait, wait, we just created that. Now you're changing it or you're, you're improving. I'm saying, but I found a simpler way of doing it. And so I keep wanting to simplify and simplify and simplify. And I think about the transformation of healthcare. And I think about this idea that I'm on a multi-decade lifetime journey to make sure that we can unlock the power of a global army of entrepreneurs who are working on everything from ending cancer to curing disease and bringing access to care to everyone in the world. And I keep going, wait, it's still too complex. It's still too complex. How they get funded, how they collaborate, how they reach consumers, patients, families, how everything flows in the healthcare system, which is the opposite of simplification. It's almost like, how can we make it the most difficult to bring innovation to patients and families? How can we make it difficult to give you great care when you go into the hospital? How can we make it difficult for you to see a doctor? All the things that I think are within the power of the right mindset with an entrepreneurial community to kind of unlock that. And so the idea of just, we will not stop until it can get simpler and simpler and simpler, yet at the same time, recognizing that that simplicity will unlock the multiplication. So I think it's an interesting kind of choice of words you just used to frame the free zone frontiering Mm. exercise to both making it about simplification so that you can use multiplication. And my feeling is that what happens because of competition, that people will complexify because they want to cover off anywhere where somebody could compete with them. So they're paying attention to their competitors, but not paying attention to the value creation that they could actually be creating for their customers and clients. So my feeling is that the natural marketplace for 
entrepreneurs where competition is the law of gravity, it forces them into greater and greater complexity of their own personal activities, the activities of their company, and their marketplace gets more complicated. And so it's what we call crappy stuff. It's just all crappy stuff. So my feeling is that we all have to, you know, as we develop our entrepreneurial companies, we have to do both the simplifying and the multiplying. But if I look at my track record, I'm a simplifier. And pretty well, the greatest entrepreneurs we have in Strategic Coach are great simplifiers. They come up with a much simpler way. And the value creation is that they relieve their customers and clients of a great deal of complexity. On the other hand, there are geniuses in the world who are great multipliers. I mean, Jeff Bezos is a great multiplier. You know, the great tech, Google and Facebook, they're great multipliers. And whoever, you know, was first in on the internet, that's a great multiplier. So we have massive multiplying capabilities that are really, really inexpensive. And the multipliers are looking for simplifiers. So we're going to use that as a next episode discussion because I know we need to wrap up, yep. but I want to talk about, you mentioned Jeff Bezos, you mentioned simplifying. I want to talk about free zone frontiering around a couple of things that I've noticed where the use of tools like the impact filter are very much in parallel use a little bit differently, but same idea inside of Amazon and how they're using it as a multiplication force, but how mm. simple they actually make the internal process of so I'm going to leave everybody hanging on that one but I think it's a great topic for the next episode. Yes. So I just want everybody to remember what we've talked about. There's an entirely new dimension of entrepreneurism that's now possible and we're just heading into the 2020s and that term itself is probably good for seeing things most clearly. Anyway, Steve, thanks a lot for your 50% of the partnership of asking questions and giving <laughs> examples of this. And we'll see you on the next episode of Free Zone Frontier. Thanks, Dan. Take care.